Transfiguration is a wild story. While brooding on it this week, a small indelible memory came to my mind. It involves a pleasant relationship I developed with a retired school teacher more than 35 years ago. Betty was a warm and garrulous woman. She was a tad eccentric, but well-liked. And she also had a very deep spiritual restlessness. And though she was close to 50 years older than me, she often came around to my office agitating for conversation about God and life and death. Her husband had died several years earlier, and she had a need to talk about that and a whole bunch of other things as well. I came to like her quite a lot, and I found that her questions revealed a homespun wisdom. Well, one day, Betty came and told me she didn't know what she believed about God and faith, and this worried her. When she spoke of her husband, which she did often, her eyes would well up with tears. She feared her sense of loss would, would never end. She fretted about her remaining days, about her loneliness, about her relationship with God. She wondered where her life was headed. I surmise, though, that a roving, dynamic faith flowed underneath all of her questions. We always wound up laughing a lot, too. Laughter, by the way, is authentic laughter is an indication of spiritual health. I found her questions strangely resonant with my own inner life. It began to dawn that we had some things in common that I wouldn't have surmised. A kind of innate spiritual curiosity. So I learned how to listen to her questions. I was less good at providing satisfactory answers in those days, but Betty was okay with that. It was enough she had a safe place to ask them, she said, with someone who wouldn't think she was, as she put it, off her rocker. Well, one day she walked into my office, especially euphoric, and after closing the door quietly, she recounted in kind of a hushed tone how she had experienced a spiritual vision two days earlier. Something like this had never happened to her before, she said. And it came while she was driving to the store of all places. She described a certain stretch of two-lane highway with which I was very familiar. It was unexceptional in its uh, landscape except for a sharp rise that topped on a small hill revealing a far view, an unobstructed view. Nothing particularly special about it. By coincidence, I was on that very stretch of road this weekend, which I think is why Betty's story came to my mind. 
Well, Betty said it wouldn't sound like much in the telling. And she hoped I didn't think she was nuts. But as she came over that hill, the landscape had been transformed into a vista of breathtaking beauty. The dull winter gray sky had become a brilliant blue and the land was lush and verdant, stretching off into the distance. It felt holy, she said, and eternal. She had some difficulty finding the right set of words to describe her experience. She said she pulled the car to the side of the road and sat as that experience just seeped into her. She was filled with a sense of overwhelming peacefulness and gratitude. God was there, she said. She knew it with absolute certainty. And though the vision eventually faded into the midwinter gloom, her sense of God did not fade, even to the present moment with her now reporting it to me. Normally very chatty. For the first time in our relationship, she became very still and sat for many minutes in silence. Her eyes focused, I could tell, on that far place. A palpable peacefulness settled in. Eventually, she said quietly that I probably thought she was just some batty old lady, but by God, she knew what she knew. I replied that on the contrary, she seemed eminently sane to me. Well, this proved to be a life-altering moment for Betty. There was no doubt about that. And I found that every time I drove over that stretch of road in the weeks that followed, I slowed down, secretly hoping that what she caught there might be contagious. Her experience, as small as it was in scope, nevertheless opened into a realm that was vast, even holy. I was sure of that. Those of you that might know what I'm speaking of here, it's a stretch of Route 32 on the way to Kingston, New York, otherwise known as the realm of God. Over the years, I came to understand that an important aspect of what I try to do in my role here is to stimulate the spiritual imagination. Prodding, agitating for a deeper engagement with that realm that lies beyond our material senses. That's one of the reasons we gather for worship, you know. With an open heart and mind, the liturgy and prayer and music at their best, and that wonderful space upstairs, too, soften our defenses against God, hopefully opening spiritual windows and doors. People that show up regularly discover that over time, the worship discipline affects how they function in the world. Just as regular exercise stimulates increased physical stamina, Exercising our spiritual imagination provokes 
the deepest depreciation of the content and meaning of our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, sometimes punctuated with moments of profound insight. If, as I believe, it's our spiritual imagination that reveals the meaning and direction of our days, let me say that again. If, as I believe, it is our spiritual imagination that reveals the meaning and direction of our days, it stands to reason there are no more important activities that could occupy our time than the sorts of things we're doing here. So let's affirm that what we do together here matters and will continue to matter long after we've drawn our last breath. As the Gospel lesson tells the tale, Peter, James, and John have been hanging out with Jesus for a while when they took a walk up a mountain and are surprised by a transfiguring vision. They had been steeped in the life of the temple, of course. They knew the stories of Torah well. And now their own imaginations have been stimulated into overdrive as though the scrim on the stage set has been raised, allowing them to see things as they really are. You know, the larger thing, the truer thing, the holy thing. And their lives are changed, but not immediately. At first, if you were to read forward, at first they're confused and afraid, and they'll go back down the mountain and they'll argue about who's the greatest among them and who should be shown special favors and so on. It won't be until several months later. After their own betrayal of this transfigured Jesus, that this vision will be understood and will take its place among the stories we now tell about him and his friends, that it might stimulate our own imaginations. You know, those of you that have been around here know that the mission of Christ's church, we say, is to love God above all things and love our neighbors as ourselves. That's our mission statement. Well, well, to claim that and then actually attempt to embody such a thing, I believe requires spiritual imagination. You can't get to it through any other means. From the world's point of view, this is an extremely counterintuitive life mission where, as you well know out there, the reasonable directive might more nearly resemble love yourself and to hell with everybody else. Get on with it. <laughs> love yourself some more. In order to get to our mission, we have to see our world peeled of its outer appearance so as to witness the glorious vista beyond. When Jesus says things like, uh, as he opened the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What kind of cockamamie malarkey is that? <laughs> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. 
Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called children of God. To really hear and embody that way of living requires spiritual imagination. You can't take in this wisdom through any other medium. Peacemaking in a world of war? Humility? In a world of astonishing arrogance? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness in a world where personal and corporate corruption is the norm? You can see how bereft our world would truly be without at least a few developing their spiritual imaginations. You can see it, right? Ultimately, they are the ones who make it a better place. People with spiritual imaginations make this world a better place. Who see its potential and who commit themselves to living into the vision that has been revealed. As you may know, February is Black History Month. By the way, just as an aside, parenthetically, following this service, our own Ben Jordan and I think Elaine Thompson have been preparing some food in honor of the month. You want to go through those doors afterwards. <laughs> well, this being Black History Month, I was again reminded of that famous speech of Martin Luther King that is so apropos to our topic today, I Have a Dream. Do you remember it? Remember how he said, I have a dream? that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. That one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places made plain, the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the people shall see it together. King had a vision of our culture peeled of its cracked veneer to see the glorious vista beyond. It's breathtaking now when you stop to think about it, isn't it? When you really see it and take it full on. This vision, this vision had been nurtured in King's case, how? By the church. It was practiced through worship and encouraged by others who were also possessed by an active spiritual imagination. This is an imagination cooker, you see? What we're doing here. Dreams of things to come through the grace of God have a way of taking tangible form. Not easily, not perfectly, not without false starts and obstacles along the way, but in the same manner, this congregation and each of us 
stride into the future in a time of great uncertainty about so-called organized religion. More than ever, we need to stir our spiritual imaginations to see God's realm beyond the midwinter gloom. Do you not feel gloomy in the midst of our current cultural situation? What is the antidote? I'm telling you, a spiritual, dynamic, spiritual imagination that is seeking and yearning to be in conversation with other people who are seeking and yearning to see the great vista beyond. You can feel it, can't you? And then again, on the night before his assassination, King concluded his speech in Memphis, do you remember? By saying, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up the mountain. And I've looked over. And I have seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Can you see it too? As it turns out, Betty could. <laughs> <laughs>